welcome to More Devotedly, a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive, progressive change. I'm Douglas Dietrich. You're invited to our launch party at 7 p.m. on Sunday, October 6th, 2019, at the 1905 in Portland, Oregon. Visit moredevotedly.com for details. In Volume 1 of More Devotedly, we're thinking about this question. Who belongs here? There are many intersecting ways to think about belonging, but because of my guest Joe Kai and his personal history as an immigrant, that's the lens through which we'll examine this question in this episode. The United States of America has never been a completely welcoming place for immigrants. But despite the many barriers to their doing so, immigrants have made so many incredible contributions to our arts, our culture, and our society. Without them and how they've changed us, we wouldn't recognize the America that we'd have. It wouldn't be the America that we have now, the America that, despite all its faults, I love. President Trump has been attacking immigrants, among many other groups, as a political strategy since he began his campaign in 2015. He has called them criminals, rapists, and more recently, invaders. It's clear that to this president, these people aren't true Americans, that they don't belong. That enrages me. But fortunately, artists are doing incredible work to insist that just the opposite is true. Their art shows what we have in common and how our lives are made more vibrant by all of us working together. In volume one of this podcast, I wanted to see how some artists are making work that addresses the idea of belonging. How do we define what it means to belong? What are the different ways we can belong? To what and how many groups can we belong and still belong to the broader society of the United States? How do they reinforce that idea with their work? And most importantly, why is it important that they do? My guest this episode is Joe Kai, a violinist, looper, and vocalist whose music unites his background in classical violin with hip-hop, songwriting, and electronic music. Motivated by a deep desire to be a steward of culture, he shares stories about his own background as the son of Korean immigrants and finding his way in his adopted country. Joe makes music to heal his own traumas and to find joy, but sees his music as a generative, restorative force. In other words, the heart of his music is to nourish others as he seeks to nourish himself. This is our conversation. I wanted to talk to you because mm. I think your work is about belonging. Mm, mm. You cover a lot more territory than that too, but I, but that seems to be a really important place to start for you. To give listeners mm. context for where you're coming from, mm -hmm. could you talk about your story? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for um, engaging me in this conversation. It's been great because I've, I've been able to refocus on why I'm doing what I'm doing. I was, I was born in Korea, mm. moved to the U.S. when I was six years old, uh, and... I was a very talkative child in Korea, uh, and I loved um, performing for my extended family. We would have these kind of uh, extended family singing-a-thons where they would ask all the kids to kind of do a number, uh, and I, I loved doing that. 
Yeah, so I was living my life. I was doing me, <laughs> as they say. Yeah, uh-huh. I was doing me in Korea. Uh, and then we moved here um, so that my dad could study for his PhD. It was definitely a huge shock. Hmm. And I remember a few things, uh, one of which was I, I felt as though English sounded like a, a barrel of snakes. There are a lot of harsh S's and T's in this language, uh-huh. um, whereas I think Korean is a little more like water maybe a, a brook babbling uh, a, on. a babbling brook a yes. babbling brook of course um <laughs> so yeah the first day of school i remember walking home crying because mm. i knew who i was i knew how smart i was and there was no way to communicate that at school because i couldn't speak the language i felt like an idiot mm. and my classmates uh treated me as such mm-hmm. um but one thing I never lost sight of, and I think probably helped ease that transition, was music. Hmm. Third grade, I started playing recorder uh, with the awesome public music education that they had in the Seattle Public Schools. Hmm. Um, and in fourth grade, I picked up the violin. Violin was amazing for many reasons. Um, but to give more biographical context, um, I was the son of poor immigrants. I think hmm. my, my parents came here with stars in their eyes and thought they'd come, they would get his PhD in five or six years and then leave and go back to their home country. Mm. Um, But learning a new language at the age of 33, uh, enough to be not only proficient, but uh, excel, to do that at a high level um, was going to be difficult. Uh, To have enough money also was going to be very difficult. Um, I think we burned through most of our savings the first two years. And Mm. so by the time I had moved to Seattle from Boston um, at the age of eight, we were definitely low income. So Mm. we were living in the family housing uh, complex that the University of Washington had. Um, And I remember in third or fourth grade going to the rental office with my parents to help translate that we couldn't afford the rent, which will do things to a fourth grader. Yeah. Yeah. Note to parents, don't don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Unless you want a really... um, emotional uh, musician on your hands in the future. Um, Given that financial context, music was a paradise. Mm. Um, Everything that I put into it, I got back in return. If I went into my room and practiced for a couple hours this one passage, then I knew that I would be able to play it um, and that I could express and put into it all of the different feelings that I buried, quite frankly, Mm. um, so that I would not have to put that burden on my parents. So the high school I went to, uh, Garfield High School in Seattle, um, you know, I think our school was 42% black, 36% white, 16% Asian. Um, it was a real diverse place. If I wanted to skip school, um, I would just put my AP calculus book under my arm and just walk out the front door <laughs> while saying hi to, to Mr. Dixon, the security guard. I'd be like, oh, hi, Mr. Dixon. He'd be like, well, hello, Joe. Here's an Asian kid with a calculus book in his hand. He knows where he's going. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> to, to, to Yale. That's where he's yeah, going. Right. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, in that same moment, I remember walking out and then there was a black kid. He's just walking around in the school. And Mr. Dixon's like, where's your hall pass? Hmm. Right. Uh, where are you going? So obviously the model minority myth is, is a myth, first of all. Um, and it's suffocating 
because people expect you to be submissive. You're a hard worker. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these stereotypes that, frankly, were propagated by segments of white popular America, especially during the civil rights movement, in order to, to divide. You don't want Asians to get in on this civil rights movement. You don't want them to join the black cause. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to make sure that all of these, air quotes, uh, inferior minorities stay in conflict with each other. So yeah, I mean, it, it is suffocating, but at the same time, I used it. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I used that perception for my own advantage. Although, I mean, yeah. Was it really to my advantage if I was skipping school? (laughs) (laughs) Hurting your own future. Right, come on now, Joe. (laughs) I try, but I fall every time you walk through that door. Why didn't I realize, but I should have known, have known, da-da-da-da. I went to, had the privilege of attending Yale University. Going to, in many ways, the hotbed of American elitism was certainly a very eye-opening experience. The first thing that I bought was a peacoat. It's like, okay, I, gotta, I gotta fit in. Like, <laughs> right. gotta get a peacoat. They won't know. They'll think I'm white. <laughs> yeah. I, I joined the Wythen Poofs, which is the the oldest collegiate acapella group in the world. Wow. Um, okay. Excellent. It just reeked of, of privilege and elitism in a way that made me feel really uncomfortable. Hmm. Our pre-year retreat was in the Hamptons. Hmm. Um, and here we are singing for, you know, a bunch of... Um, I have my hand up with an imaginary wine glass. Oh, the wine. You're, okay, you're swirling, swirling a wine. Oh, no, yes. but it was brandy. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is Armagnac. Uh, <laughs> swirling the Armagnac. Yeah. Uh, we were staying at, you know, one of the members' houses, and they said, the, we're going to go play tennis. You want to come? I was like, sure. And then they were like, did you bring your tennis whites? <laughs> Man. <laughs> and I'm like, tennis whites. Um, yeah. So, unbelonging is real. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's real. Um, and and not, it doesn't have to be, of course, in, in such rarefied company. I mean, it's funny because that particular story of going to the Hamptons, yeah. most Americans wouldn't relate to that either. Right. You know? Right, right, right. Like, you ask most Americans, did you bring your tennis whites? And they're not going to feel much different than the way you felt, you right. know? But at the same time, of course, there are, like, layers and multiplicities of unbelonging <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, um, you know, coming from a, a low-income immigrant family, um, I just didn't have resources. And so, yeah, I definitely felt poor being in that group um, as well as Asian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. There's just, there are all these kind of dimensionalities that intersect. So I graduated from Yale and I, ha- I also had, I was in the same predicament that my dad was. Mm. I had to get a job with someone who would sponsor me for a work visa or a green card. Uh, there was no way that I was going to go back to Korea and suddenly live life there, having moved here at the age of six. Um, so I luckily I got a job at the Urban School of San Francisco, um, teaching high school English, um, and then you know moved up to Seattle to the Overlake School in order to teach high school English. These are all mm, okay. college prep, yeah. elite private schools right. um, that their parents are paying. You know, 30 grand in order for their kids to use this as a stepping stone mm-hmm. to get into Yale or Harvard or, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, the irony of which was not lost on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's this 
immigrant, he doesn't have a permanent resident status, uh, teaching kids of the wealthy about Gatsby. I, I mean, I loved it. It was a secondary and finishing school for me. Um, I think having grown up poorer, there was always this idea, well, if we could just afford a Honda Civic, I'd be so happy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we had, I had a homeroom student whose family was just into Ferraris. That mm. was their kind of family hobby, and they mm -hmm. had multiple Ferraris. Mm -hmm. uh, like one does. Right, like one does. <laughs> um, and certainly, you know, she wasn't happy. There were many things that made her sad, um, and she suffered. So on, on the one hand, I, I realized that we all suffer, mm -hmm. even the financially privileged. On the other hand, I also saw what having that sense of privilege could open for your own concept of what you can be and what you can do with your life. For my parents, watching me do well in school and go to Yale, I was their card out, hmm. right? This is how we're going to um, ascend in class and, and also relieve us of our financial suffering. So I had a lot riding on my shoulders hmm. with that. On the other hand, I met parents at Overlake uh, and the Urban School who had the financial capability to allow their children to dream mm. and allow their children access to themselves in a way that I think financially disadvantaged students can't. Oh, my son is really into snowboarding. And at some point in the future, he really wants to start his own snowboarding company yeah. where he makes his own snowboards. Right. And how do you feel about that, Mrs. <laughs> Blank? Like, oh, it's great. Like, what? Yeah. Being exposed to that and witnessing that made me realize, why not me? Hmm. Why can't I do all of these things? Um, why am I spending my free blocks when I'm supposed to be grading English papers, singing with chamber choir, uh, singing with the students? Um, why, when I got my faculty grant, did I use it to record my first EP, which is not on the internet and shall never be named? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we all have that recording. Right, that one. <laughs> um, which is why in 2013, I made the transition to doing music full time. I was applying to graduate school programs uh, in cultural studies, which is basically what I majored in. Um, and I was writing these long PhD proposals about, I'm going to study Asian American musicians who are using music as a vehicle for social justice. After talking to a bunch of PhD students, I realized I don't want to study these people. I don't want to sit in the library listening to these people and writing papers about them mm. like my dad did. I don't want to analyze culture. I want to create culture. Mm. Um, and... That is what brings me the most joy. That's why in 2013, I made that transition and a huge risk at that. So I use the looping machine, right, um, right. which is a really cool device that you can use in live performance to record yourself and then to record other layers of yourself on there. Recently, I've been thinking about how the looping machine really does help me to express all the different selves uh, that I have within me, whether it is the, the dutiful son or the translator or the rebellious American teenager, um, the one that loves their parents, the one that resents their parents. Um, hmm. you know, here are four bars, but you know, I'm gonna have kind of a funky, happy-go-lucky bass line but on top of that, I'm going to put in a plaintive melody that I think captures the full extent of, of what I'm feeling about any given topic. 
so you're taking these tools that you have. Mm -hmm, you have the mm -hmm. violin. Mm -hmm. um, you have your looping pedal, and you have your the rest of your setup for making sounds. You have your voice. Um, you sing. You rap. You write songs. You're writing lyrics. Mm. Um, but then also the ideas you're dealing with are often hmm. drawn from your own experience. Talk to me about your mission. Sure. So your question, and especially the mission part, like I said, was really helpful because it reminded me, okay, why am I doing this? Um, and it made me revisit uh, an awesome book called Culture Care it's by this uh, professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in LA. Uh, his name is Makoto Fujimura. Okay. Side note. I grew up very Christian. The book itself is a little evangelical at times, mm -hmm. um, but there are some amazing metaphors and core concepts that ha have really influenced how I go about creating um, and how what I think about creation and the, and the creative process. The foremost metaphor is just the environment. It's because pollution is destroying the natural balance of, um, of the nature around us. Um, so if we just take streams and water, uh, we have factories which are manufacturing things that we may or may not need, um, but that do satisfy us in, in the interim. So sugar or sugary drinks, for example. Sure. Yeah. And, but as a byproduct of, of these creations, we have pollution, which then goes down into the water, uh, the freshwater fish who are affected, um, the animals that eat those freshwater fish that are affected, the water which goes into the, the bay, uh, and then the salmon that are affected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It, it's a, it's a never-ending cascade of toxicity and pollution. So he draws a parallel between that and our fight to keep the generative nature and ability of, of the environment to culture itself. Hmm. I think you can point to a lot of um, top 40 pop music as saccharine um and designed to please us um but perhaps doesn't leave us inspired or leave us desiring to change the world and in steps in, in fujimura's argument in steps the artist hmm. um the one that is trying to clean um and feed the natural balance of the environment um, he makes the argument let us not approach culture as territory that should be conquered, but rather a, a forest, right? That should be nurtured and served, hmm. um, that should be cared for. Uh, we aren't conquerors, we're stewards. My mission, of course, is to find healing for myself, but also to put into the world um, and put into listeners and concert goers um, feelings of, of hope, as well as a desire to change society for the better. Mm -hmm. um, Despite that, um, there are certainly times as a, as a professional musician where I doubt, am I doing this right? Is my branding right? Why am I doing this when this can't be branded? So yeah, reading this book really helped me to accept many things, one of which is my own mortality, uh, both just life as well as artistic mortality. You know, everyone remembers the Beatles, but just give it another thousand years, you know? I mean, <laughs> everyone remembers Mozart. Give it, give it like a couple thousand. We'll, yeah. see, we'll see if he's around. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we'll see if any of us are around. Yeah, right. It's true. <laughs> but, you know, I think as a professional, you always want to have more for yourself and you want to gain that recognition and popularity. But ultimately what you leave behind is the forest. Um, and the forest will live on without you, hmm. whether you like it or not. So um, do you want to participate in 
um, the mass chopping of lumber or do you want to approach this in a more sustainable way? So like mass resource extraction versus harvesting what you need. Yeah. And um, and giving back. And giving back. Planting, mm -hmm. fertilizing, mm -hmm. um, and doing so in a way that is generative for yeah. society. I saw you put an Instagram video. You were playing in a high school gymnasium? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody commented on this post yeah. um, saying, uh, after hearing you and seeing you do your thing, I don't feel worried about being an Asian stereotype mm. anymore, Yeah, is what he said, roughly. Sure. And so when I read that, I can see that his, his background could be similar in some ways it could be quite sure. different sure. you know sure but they had been relieved by seeing you kind of do your alchemy of kind of bringing all those things together hmm. you know the violin your background as an asian person growing up in the united states mm -hmm. and putting that together with all these different kinds of things that you do musically that is the case for representation mm. i i had that exact same anxiety growing up if there's a given stereotype of who you are based on what you look like, um, there are a series of different options, right? You can go with that and laugh at those jokes and say, yeah, I am blank. There's the rebellious phase, which is still a response mm -hmm. to the oppressive stereotype. Then I think now at this phase of my life, uh, <laughs> there's a part of me that's saying, no, like I love science. Science is cool let me empty all the apples in my basket and then before i put them back just observe each one do i like this apple is this me uh and once i've accepted that this is internally how i define myself then i put it back mm. because there is not the representation um that limits what we believe is available for ourselves mm. um so for this kid to see crap here's this Asian dude with a violin, He's got a violin and, yeah. and like, man, you know, maybe he plays violin. Like, yeah, I, I hear so many jokes about me playing violin from all of my classmates and my friends, mm. right? Not just like these evil gangsters that live in my school. No, my friends, yeah. you know, this is not going to help. Right. And then to see this person using that instrument to do something other than you know, the box sure. Sonata G minor, uh, it can be world opening. Um, to have that representation there. Mm. I love classical music. And if there's a wonderful classical musician who is an Asian American, great. Like, yeah. I'm so glad they're doing that. We just have to make sure that all of the, the other avenues and uh, images exist out there for people to have access to. When I started picking up the banjo and becoming more serious about it and, and trying to find my own way to use the instrument and say something that I felt I couldn't say without it. Hmm. Somebody that was really important to that process was Rhiannon Giddens. Hmm. She's done a lot of amazing work in kind of reclaiming that heritage of the banjo as an mm. African-American instrument. Sure. Um, and it's funny for me, even though I'm not an <laughs> African-American person, sure, yeah. to see that, oh, well, this is an instrument that has a beautiful story. Hmm. And this is an instrument that when I pick it up, I feel like I'm picking up the american story sure you know um so when you pick up that instrument yeah. you're kind of picking up that whole legacy that comes with it you know right. sure how does knowing that the instrument itself 
contrary to popular stereotype, has a more diverse heritage, which is is black in its roots, mm-hmm. um, is African in its roots. Being aware of, of the history of, of your own instrument and kind of the traditions that you're entering into is is super important. And mm. I think that the more you know about it, the more you kind of replace stereotypes with actual facts, mm-hmm. it can really broaden and deepen your appreciation for what, what you're doing and what mm. other people are doing. It's the stewardship mindset. Yeah. When you have that knowledge, when you have that legacy, and you know that you're just a participant in the narrative of the banjo or the violin for me, mm-hmm. the appropriation, obviously that's that's another episode as well, many yeah. episodes. Right. Um, but it doesn't seem as appropriative when you when you are acting as a steward on behalf of the instrument um, yeah. and the truth of its legacy. If you're going to be engaging with an instrument in a in a serious way over mm-hmm. a long period of time, sure. it's a way to create that nurturing relationship. You're both giving and receiving. Right. For me, that's like the whole reason to be in the arts sure. at all is that idea of creating something whereby another person can be relieved of anxiety. Sure. I mean, that is an amazing right power. Well, so here's a question then, mm. you know, given that legacy, but also given that you are a white male living in Portland, doesn't have, it doesn't matter if you're living in Portland, how does that legacy manifest on the stage? Um, or does it? Because I think it would be really easy for, you know, middle school Joe to walk into a little one's concert mm-hmm. and see you and be like, oh, it's another white dude playing banjo. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think it's really important to talk about your sources and mm-hmm. to talk about your heroes and mm-hmm. who they were. And for instance, like one, a song that I love to play is Freight Train by mm-hmm. Elizabeth Cotton. Mm-hmm. And she was an Af- African-American woman. Mm-hmm. I realized that I wasn't saying that part specifically. Mm-hmm. I wasn't saying, you know, Elizabeth Cotton was an African-American woman who, mm-hmm. who wrote this song and many others. And mm-hmm. she was amazing. And here's the 30 second version of like how awesome she was. If you listen to Freight Train and you don't know that about her, mm. you might be missing a lot of what the song's about. Mm. She's saying Freight Train, Freight Train, run so fast. Uh, she's, you know, hearing the Freight Train, seeing the Freight Train. And she's not r- singing about a train, you mm. know, she's mm-hmm. singing more about freedom. She's mm. singing about wanting to kind of escape. Yeah. And um, it is very wistful. It's a very wistful song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a, in a very, like, sing-songy package. Yeah. Uh, which is part of what makes it so beautiful. It's a really catchy tune. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, but that when you, you actually listen to it, you're, you're hearing a lot that mm. you didn't necessarily expect. And having that narrative and, and context for listeners, I think that's what you're sharing, that stewardship. Right. Um, and also, like... I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a sticky topic appropriation in and of itself. Um, but what better way for you as a white male to just get a a taste, right? Like just an inkling of the type of suffering that, that Elizabeth Cotton might've felt, um, growing up as a black American woman Mm -hmm. than music. What better way than music or the arts for us to, be able to cross boundaries and borders and just get an inkling of of what living in the shoes of some other person may have felt like. Right. Um, yeah. But recognize that these aren't your shoes. Like you should yeah. tell people like yes. these are my shoes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that is so important. Right. Yeah. I think right. I think it really was and and there are times that I forget to to be specific mm-hmm. and to be very clear about these things for people that don't know who she was. Sure. Sure. Even people who they know lots of bluegrass. They might know a lot of like old country music. They might know a lot of folk music. 
they uh, chances are good they won't know Elizabeth Cotton, and and, and chances are also good they wouldn't know she was black. Hmm. I have this instrument strapped around me that can send messages without me even saying a word, mm. right? So I think it's important to add to that. You have sure. to kind of add that context. And the violin's the same way. Right, right, right. Something really important about what you do is that you deal very directly with your Asian heritage. And mm. that mm. it's like, this is an important part of what you need to know about me mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to understand what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Do you see it that way? I think in some ways, it's more my experience than my heritage. That's um, important too, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, there are certainly wonderful heritage acts, right? Like Korean folk music heritage acts. I guess what I'm trying to communicate and the style that I would generally say is the songs that, that pop up in my head um, as an Asian American, those are my, those are my inspirations. Hmm. Um, whether it's rap music, I give thanks for, for Black America for inventing rap. It is such a powerful method of directly and indirectly communicating your emotions and feelings that was a big part of my childhood um you know my, one of my mom's favorite artists is stevie wonder then i have like pentatonic kind of korean folk lullabies mm. that i grew up with um the beatles which were huge for me almost yeah. everything basically from 18 to 22 um <laughs> jazz vocal music uh-huh. uh you know so all of these things are authentic to my experience mm. um how can i bring these together in a cohesive way that communicates um, at least just my experience. Mm -hmm. And if others can plug in and see aspects of themselves, whoever they are, um, then I feel like I've, I've done my job. Yeah. 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 Thanks for making that distinction between uh, your personal experience and heritage. Sure. Which are are different things. Just being specific. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I dream of escaping this madness that surrounds us, confounds us, leaves us astounded and doubtful of love around us. When all I have to do is say hello, how are you? How does it feel? Is that so? Is that true for you too? Yes, all I do may not lead to success. So, Joe, let's talk about politics. Yeah, let's. <laughs> you became a citizen. You? Not so long ago, right? When, yeah. When was that? Uh, I think November of last year. Oh my gosh, it was yeah. like, yeah, very recently then. Very recently. <laughs> Welcome to the party. <laughs> This shit show of a party. Yeah, welcome, welcome <laughs> to the to the like train wreck in slow motion. Yep. You didn't have to. Is that correct? You had permanent residence status, so you, sure. could, you could have not. Sure, but I couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't participate in a meaningful way uh, in my country. Mm-hmm. Well, we were we were going to talk a little about about Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. and actually, I think there's a connection. Sure. And I'll try to explain what I mean. But we were we were talking a bit about some of your inspirations and mm-hmm. your heroes kind of in, in the arts and people that you feel are doing things that you were impressed by. Um, and so Mr. Rogers was one person that came up, which mm-hmm. is beautiful. And mm-hmm. I love Mr. Mm-hmm. Rogers. Uh, and so many people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that the reason is because he, for me, um, he took us, us as in children, mm-hmm. um, took us very seriously mm-hmm. and was honest mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that honesty and, and that serious intention, you know, showed that he respected us. Mm, right. Right. By creating space for us to reflect on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just, I respect you, I respect you. It's, let's give pause and allow you to digest and express. Yeah. Um, Showing and not telling. Right. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that came to mind for me was um, how um, very often Mr. Rogers took on the news um, mm. And so, like, one specific example was after JFK was assassinated, 
um, Mr. Rogers made a an episode specifically talking about that event. Mm. So often, um, and I am no different, mm. the inclination is to hide those things from our children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to, to not talk about the mass shooting that just happened. Mm. But Mr. Rogers was able to approach that mm. directly and... He's like saying, this is what assassination means. It's a mm. long word, and, and it has a scary meaning to it. Yeah. Um, the reason I thought about that was because mm. so often the way people begin engaging with politics is through tragedy, Yeah. right? And as a parent now, I'm thinking about him mm. leading kids through that experience sure, in, sure. in such a thoughtful and caring way. Right. Well, it inspires care. Mm. He inspires care as opposed to willful ignorance. You know, you're talking about how parents wanted to, to hide their kids from tragedies um, in, a, in an effort to protect them. But what Mr. Rogers was able to do was to approach those uh, and to address them head on um, in an age-appropriate way, which then I think cultivates caring citizens um, and, and citizens who want to react and and make their communities a place where tragedy can be reduced. Um, Hatred can be reduced and fear can be reduced. Um, That was another thing that I think uh, Mr. Rogers did really well is just his approach to fear, Mm. recognizing that fear exists um, and also drawing back the veil on the sources of that fear, whether it's internal or external as progressives who are shielded, um, to a large extent, um, from a lot of tragedy right now, uh, it's easy to coast. Mm. Um, so when I see things like those tragedies, we're, we're already becoming numb. I, I remember Columbine, right? And it was huge. Columbine, it didn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat or, you know, a, a Pat Buchanan fan or, you know, whatever you supported, you saw that and you saw complete tragedy um, we need to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's become so politicized. Yeah. Uh, guns have become so politicized uh, that it's impossible to do anything. And by politicized, I mean monetized. I think the NRA spent literally millions of dollars, right, for, for lobbying, um, which is crazy that mm-hmm. in many respects guns have more of a voice in this country than than humans do yeah uh, and certainly more than students do yeah because um, you know kids can't vote high school students can't vote um to draw that parallel to mr rogers um he inspires that care and that desire um and he also encourages that participation mm-hmm. um in, a, in an authentic way from children um and so how can we do that for adults well that's an opportunity for artists mm. you know to to step in there and find a way like mr rogers did is to create that space let's not be completely paralyzed sure. by our frustration and also our sadness but also to bring to construct as you said bring things together people get broken apart mm-hmm. you know in a tragedy like that and i think you know mr rogers found that way to help kids put themselves back together mm-hmm. you know and I think artists can do that for children and for adults. Sure. You know? Yeah. Like, 
let's all be good and care about each other like yeah it's it's just not a sexy message doug well it just doesn't sell (laughs) it's true it doesn't sell that's Mm. true however i Mm. think that's where the difference between like showing and telling Mm. is Mm. to me it can be so uninspiring Mm. to hear somebody just ranting Mm. um, or just being sad sure and if they haven't done that healing themselves I mean, like, if the artist hasn't done that and they can't show that they've done that Mm. through their work, then they're not ready. Yeah, that's another uh, infamous Fred Rogers, you know, narrative is that network executives were constantly saying, this is too slow, this isn't going to sell, this is doomed for failure. Um, And every time Mr. Rogers would fight back and say, Mm. no, I need to do a a show about assassination. Uh, I need to slow down how I speak so that kids can digest. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's really just a challenge, right? How do we, how do we use social media and deliver that message and be creative in delivering that so that we can skirt some of the established methods, um, of, of, of social media promotion. If it's good, if it's really good, people will be attracted to it. Um, yeah, at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> yeah. Coming full circle here. If you are going to be a steward, though, you are not going to have as many trees as someone who says, I'm going to spend my life cutting down all the trees and conquering this thing. Um, so I think that's what I have to tell my ego constantly is, okay, if you're really in it for this reason, if you're really in it to, um, to battle corruption and to, to give life and generative hope to society you're gonna have to sacrifice to a certain extent unless you're your ma (laughs) but actually i think something that's common between mr rogers and Mm. yo-yo ma is Mm. that both Mm. of them have taken a really long view Mm. um because like if you look at just the episode about assassination with fred Mm -hmm. rogers Mm -hmm. that's not gonna sell sure yeah that shit's not taking him to Texas. yeah Yeah, but over time Mm. if he shows i am a person who gives a shit about your children mm. and then parents are able to like recognize that and see it over and over and over again yeah when the time comes to do the episode about the president being assassinated right they're going to trust him and they're going to respect him even more mm. so i mean i hopefully we can learn from that yeah <laughs> it's, it's like being the kind of stable uh slightly boring but empathetic friend <laughs> Right. Versus like, you know, the, the, the guy in college you hang out for about three months, like going to parties. Yeah. You're like, this is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, so totally. like, let's, let's be the former rather than the latter. Yes. Yeah. And do it on whatever level you can and with, on whatever scale you can mm. and whatever um, level of experience you have. And, yeah. And that's yeah. the stewardship, once again, mm-hmm. is it doesn't rely on your status as a steward. Right? Your act of stewardship in and of itself is, is that which brings value to yourself as well as the culture around you. So. Beautiful. Let's leave it there. Boom. <laughs> thank you, Joe. Dude, I really my appreciate pleasure. it. Are you kidding me? I feel so... Thank you again, because this was really... It's inspiring. Cool. Thank you so much, Joe. Learn more about Joe Kai by heading over to moredevotedly.com, where you can find links to his music and hear more episodes of this podcast. 
You can also sign up for our email list there to hear about new episodes, events, and other news from this project. And you can follow More Devotedly on social media. We're on Instagram at More Devotedly, and you can respond to what you hear on our Facebook group. This episode was produced by me, Douglas Dietrich, in Portland, Oregon. I composed the theme music at the beginning of the episode, and the interstitial music you heard came partly from Joe's 2018 album called Migrants. Find a link to buy that album at moredevotedly.com. I also used music from a piece Joe and I created together called Bear in the Room, based on an interview with data scientist Ratnanjali Adar, which will be released as part of Volume 2 of More Devotedly and performed live as part of the Fertile Ground Festival in Portland, Oregon, on February 1st and 2nd. More on that soon. Next on More Devotedly, we'll talk with Kunu Bercham, a Portland, Oregon-based hip-hop and video artist. We talked about how a storyteller can be a vital part of a movement for change and how the arts help him and fellow members of his indigenous community inspire each other to be the writers and directors of their own destinies. What you're doing now is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly? <laughs>